Hello and welcome to the Indiana Lawyer Podcast, your source for news and Hoosier law, brought to you by Taft. I'm Tyler Fenwick, Indiana Lawyer, Senior Reporter, and your host. As always, thanks for joining us. For our extended interview this week, I spoke with Marion Superior Court Judge Heather Welch and April Keaton, a Deputy Attorney General in the AG's office. We talked about the National Association of Women Judges Annual Conference, which is coming to Indianapolis in October. But before we get to that, I'm here in our studio with managing editor Daniel Carson and reporter Alexa Shrake to talk about this week's top legal news. Today is Wednesday, September 6th, and these are your headlines. I'll start us off with some news about the Indiana Department of Child Services. DCS Director Eric Miller has been ordered to appear in person at a hearing September 25th in Hendricks Superior Court. Miller will have to make a case for why DCS shouldn't be held in contempt for failing to obey court orders to produce documents in an underlying civil case. The hearing was originally scheduled for today, but it was rescheduled Tuesday. The state filed a motion asking the court to vacate the hearing, saying DCS hasn't acted in bad faith or willfully violated court orders. DCS isn't a party in the case that involves a father who was sentenced to 70 years in prison for the tortured death of his four-year-old son. But court documents show DCS placed the child in his parents' home, and a motion for rule to show cause says DCS hasn't been forthcoming with documents related to the child and his parents. DCS has asked for and received extensions to produce documents, but the department's last extension request went beyond the statute of limitations in October, and the request was denied. The plaintiff's motion says DCS has produced some documents, but that they've been incomplete with redactions. That's despite the court already approving a protective order. In its motion, though, the state said DCS has produced more than 1,900 documents and 22,707 emails. Sticking with DCS, Daniel, you have news about a dismissed federal case against employees at the agency. What can you tell us? Four Department of Child Services employees are not responsible for the deaths of five children who died in a house fire two weeks after they were removed from their adoptive parents' home, a federal judge ruled in dismissing a Fourth Amendment unreasonable seizure claim. Magistrate Judge Kelly Barr of the Indiana Southern District Court granted summary judgment to Michelle Adams, Kelsey Smitha, Kelsey Barrett, and Whitney McKay on a Fourth Amendment claim brought by Lisa and Darwin Ridner, whose five adopted children and adult daughter were killed in a Vivet house fire in March 2020. The fire occurred just two weeks after the five children were removed from the Ridner's care. DCS had received a report of abuse and neglect on March 14, 2020, and Lisa Ridner consented to interviews of herself and the children. Lisa admitted in her interview that she had screamed at and used physical discipline on the children, who disclosed abuse at Lisa's hand. One child had a mark on the back of his head. DCS subsequently obtained verbal authorization from the Switzerland Circuit Court to remove the children. Indiana State Police also conducted an investigation, but ultimately declined to criminally charge Lisa. The Ridners sued DCS and several of its employees in May 2021, alleging Fourth and Fourteenth Amendment violations, as well as abuse of process, frivolous litigation, wrongful death, and intentional infliction of emotional distress, the Star reported. Only the Fourth Amendment claim was at issue in Barr's August 21st order. Barr wrote that the deaths of the children were neither the DCS employees nor the Ridner's fault, with neither party responsible for a fire of unknown origin. Also, even if the Fourth Amendment claim survived the children's deaths, Barr determined that the defendants would be entitled to qualified immunity. 
Thanks, Daniel. Now coming to you, Alexa, you covered a new lawsuit having to do with gender transition care for minors. What's happening there? The American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana has filed a lawsuit against the Indiana Department of Correction for not providing gender transition surgery for an incarcerated transgender woman. The lawsuit relates to House Enrolled Act 1569, which was passed this year. The new law restricts the DOC from using state or federal dollars to pay for gender reassignment surgery for incarcerated individuals. The lawsuit claims HEA 1569 violates the Eighth Amendment and the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment. The plaintiff in the case is an adult transgender woman housed in a prison designated to house only men. She's been diagnosed with gender dysmorphia, and while she has received female hormone and testosterone blockers, she still experiences serious depression and anxiety, according to the complaint. The complaint is asking the U.S. District Court for the Southern District of Indiana to declare the law unconstitutional and for injunctive and declaratory relief so the plaintiff can receive gender transition surgery. The suit alleges that HEA 1569 is a law that targets transgendered prisoners and makes it impossible for them to receive necessary medical care for no proper legislative end or purpose. It also claims that there is no Indiana law that is categorically denies medical necessary care to a discrete class of prisoners. The DOC declined to comment on the lawsuit. Republican Attorney General Todd Arquita released a statement on Twitter slash X. Quote, Hardworking Hoosiers want their tax dollars going toward things that benefit their family or their state as a whole, not surgeries to reverse inmates' God-given gender. The approximate cost for these surgeries ranges from 10000 to 150000 This is not necessary medical treatment, and it is an atrocity. This should be common sense, which is something the ACLU continuously ignores. We will not back down. We will continue to defend the rule of law. Rokita said, end quote. Thanks, Alexa. For more on transgender care, Daniel, there's an update on the state's appeal of a case involving gender transition care for minors. What can you tell us? The state has filed its appellant's brief with the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals and is requesting that the court vacate a preliminary injunction against a law that would ban gender transition procedures for Indiana minors. In June, Judge James Hanlon of the Indiana Southern District Court entered the injunction against Senate Enrolled Act 480. The law, which was scheduled to take effect July 1st, banned physicians from providing gender transition procedures for minors and from aiding or abetting another physician to do so. The state is now appealing that order. Quote, given the known harms and unproven benefits of these medical interventions for gender dysphoria in minors, Indiana may constitutionally prohibit them, the appellate brief states. The state also cites Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health Organization in its brief on its claim that states have broad discretion on how they choose to regulate medical procedures. Quote, states are under no constitutional imperative to authorize experimental treatments for gender dysphoria, the brief states, end quote. Among the issues the state is raising on appeal is whether, under the Equal Protection Clause, Indiana may prohibit physicians from providing minors with puberty blockers and hormones for purposes of gender transitions. The state argues in its brief that the Equal Protection Clause allows the state to, quote, 
protect children from unproven, risky, and often permanent gender transition procedures that threaten children's health and well-being, unquote. The ACLU of Indiana declined to comment on the state's appellant's brief. Meanwhile, three amici, the Alliance Defending Freedom, the Family Research Council, and a group of 21 states have filed briefs supporting the state. Thanks, Daniel. Staying on the topic of health care, Indianapolis OBGYN Dr. Caitlin Bernard said she won't appeal the Indiana Medical Licensing Board's determination that she violated patient privacy laws. The case stemmed from Bernard talking publicly about an abortion she performed on a 10-year-old rape victim from Ohio. In a statement, Bernard said she's not confident appealing would change the outcome. The board reprimanded and fined Bernard $3,000 in May for the privacy violation, but it also rejected accusations brought by Indiana Attorney General Todd Rokita that she violated state law by not reporting the child abuse to Indiana authorities. Rokita also said in a statement that his office won't appeal. Bernard says the licensing board's decision is part of the post-Roe v. Wade landscape. Quote, My time and energy are much better spent providing health care to Hoosiers now living under the recent abortion ban in our state and in the broader fight for reproductive health care. End quote. The announcement from Bernard's legal team says she is continuing to practice medicine. And now back to you, Alexa, for another update on the Indiana Supreme Court's abortion ruling. What's the latest there? The Indiana Supreme Court has denied the ACLU of Indiana's motion for a hearing on its privacy challenge against the state's near-total abortion ban. On August 21st, the High Court issued its ruling denying rehearing, and its June 30th opinion became certified. That means abortion is now banned in the state except for limited cases of rape or incest, fatal fetal anomaly, or to protect the life or health of the mother. Chief Justice Loretta Rush concurred in the ruling, but expressed her concern about, quote, the law's impact on health care providers who must determine whether to provide that care and potentially expose themselves to criminal penalties and professional sanctions, end quote. Justice Christopher Goff dissented, writing that severe medical problems can arise from a pregnancy and that seeking medical treatment would fall within the constitutional right to protect one's life and health. The law had originally taken effect on September 15, 2022, but was preliminarily enjoined a week later by Special Judge Kelsey Hanlon, who found the plaintiffs were likely to prevail on their claim that the ban, known as Senate Enrolled Act 1, violates a woman's right to privacy under Article 1, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. While that case has been settled with the High Court, another ACLU of Indiana case that is facing appeal challenges SCA 1 under the state's Religious Freedom Restoration Act. That case will go before the Court of Appeals of Indiana at 10 a.m. on December 6th in the Indiana Supreme Court courtroom. We'll be sure to keep you updated on that case's progresses. And if you want more in-depth look at how abortion has changed in Indiana over the past year, check out my story in our August 31st issue. Thanks, Alexa. Moving into education now, Indianapolis Public Schools has filed a complaint against A.G. Rokita and the state's education secretary over an updated version of a law that requires districts to offer unused classroom buildings to charter schools for $1. Senate Enrolled Act 391 says school corporations that share operating referendum funds with certain charter schools are exempt from the $1 requirement. IPS is arguing that it's exempt from the law because it shared referendum funds approved in 2018 with Innovation Charter Schools. 
but Education Secretary Katie Jenner sent a letter to the district saying it's required to provide notice of recent school closures to the department in accordance with the $1 law. According to the complaint, the district passed a resolution expressly recognizing its exemption from the $1 law. The lawsuit was filed in the Marion Superior Commercial Court. The district also filed a motion for preliminary injunction. Okay, Alexa, one more thing from you to wrap up our headlines for this week. What are you working on for our next print issue? The American Bar Association Council for Section of Legal Education and Admissions to the Bar is seeking public comment on whether to allow law school libraries to be online. The August 17th memo states that the purpose of the revisions is to give law libraries flexibility to use space, technology, information resources, and collection formats most appropriate for them. I will be looking at what this revision could mean for law schools, including Concord Law School, and we'll see if other law schools can become ABA accredited from this. Thanks, Alexa. You can read that story in our September 13th issue. Okay, that'll do it for headlines this week. As always, if you want more legal news, the IndianaLawyer.com is the place to go. Stick around after our sponsor break to hear this week's extended interview. Taft, today's modern law firm. At Taft, we cultivate a highly respectful, transparent workplace that fosters creativity, teamwork, inclusion, and diversity. We couple our culture with a client-first approach, rewarding lawyers who understand their clients' goals and work to deliver success. Taft, the modern law firm. To learn more, visit taftlaw.com. For this week's extended interview, I'm joined here in our studio by Marion Superior Court Judge Heather Welch and April Keaton, a Deputy Attorney General in the AG's office. They've been getting ready to help host the National Association of Women Judges Annual Conference, which is coming to Indianapolis from October 5th through the 7th. So thank you to both of you for joining me today. Thanks for having us today, Tyler. Thank you. So to start off, Judge Welch, can you give me an overview of what the National Association of Women Judges is and what it does? Sure. Uh, So it was formed in 1979, and it was really formed by um, a small group of female judges, a diverse group, to achieve fairness and equality for vulnerable people that need the court system. And the mission has developed into a number of things in protecting the rights of individuals to make sure they have equal access to courts and they're treated fairly. Now, April, you are chair of volunteer recruitment. Do I have that right? You are right. And so what does it mean to have the annual conference back in Indianapolis for the first time since 2004, almost 10 years? Well, it's exciting. Uh, I'm a lifelong Hoosier, so I love the city and I know we have a lot to offer. But it's wonderful also to bring a large group of women judges from all over the country, all over the world into one place so they can build those relationships and, and grow in their professions. Now, Judge Welch, you chair the planning committee for the conference, right? I do. And so what was the process to get the conference here to Indianapolis again? Well, the National Association of Women Judges has a site um, selection committee. And so there were a number of judges on that committee and a few that I've known for about 10 or 15 years. And so a few of them suggested that uh, I apply um, to see if Indianapolis could again host the National Association of Women Judges Conference. So I thought it was a great idea. Uh, You know, COVID makes time a little fuzzy, but 
it was probably 2020, 2021. Um, and so I did that application with the assistance of Visit Indy, and they were quite helpful in getting a lot of the information I needed to submit to actually end up winning that bid so they, the National Association of Women Judges could be here this October. Now, what is that application process like? Is it really intense? I'm thinking like when cities bid for the Super Bowl. Is it one of those things? Oh, it's not as intense as the Super Bowl, right? Uh, th- those were uh, hundreds of thousands of people coming. But it you did have to provide a lot of information. Visit Indy was helpful because they want to know uh, the different um, hotel venues, uh, what things might be in the downtown where the conference would be that the judges could take advantage of. And um, I needed to provide a lot of information then on my side about why Indianapolis would be a good fit to have the conference. So April, how many judges are you expecting for the conference? We anticipate about 250 judges, and that includes about 50 international judges. And so there are international judges and judges, I'm assuming, coming from all over the country, too. That is correct. Okay. And are there any specific program sessions, Judge Welch, that that you're looking forward to? Well, I'm looking forward to all of them, but I would tell you uh, a couple that I think are going to be very timely topics. Uh, One is helping judges understand artificial intelligence. As you know, ChatGPT and other platforms that involve artificial intelligence are all uh, we're talking about, and judges need to learn how we're going to manage that, what policies we should implement. So that's a really important one. I also think uh, another one I would highlight is, are we losing independent courts? And uh, courts are under attack, and many uh, citizens don't perceive courts as being fair institutions. And so I think that's a really important uh, session for judges to learn about what they can uh, do when they go back to their jurisdictions to make uh, people uh, help people understand why courts are fair. And what about you, April? Anything in particular you're looking forward to? I am. Um, as an early career attorney, uh, this is my first, but hopefully not my last national conference. So I'm looking forward to the first time attendee gathering. Um, I've been very welcomed as a member uh, into the organization. So I'm excited about meeting other first time attendees and connecting with the judges that attend. Speaking of connecting with judges and other attendees, April, it seems like this is just an ultimate kind of networking event, too. Is that right? It feels that way. It feels like you have an opportunity to really grow your relationships, to grow professionally, but I think also to grow personally. I think having a large group of women judges together who have an understanding of the challenges they face as women judges, I think you also get to build some support systems and camaraderie. And you said this will be your first national conference, correct? My first, but hopefully not my last. Now, Judge Welch, I know you're excited about having law students involved at the conference this year. Can you explain what that's going to look like? Yes, the program is called Planting the Seed. And so it's really important. Many times law students don't have access to judges, whether it's local judges, state judges, or judges in other parts of the country. Uh, And I find that out in the work I do as teaching uh, legal writing at the law school. They don't know how to connect with judges, and I can see how excited they are when they connect with me in class. So the program will have a number of law schools. We have confirmed right now IU McKinney here in Indianapolis, IU Mauer in Bloomington, and Notre Dame uh, Law School in South Bend. Uh, We're waiting to hear about 
back from the University of Louisville Law School and Dayton Law School. But we'll have a number of uh, diverse students from each of those law schools. They will come and we'll do a, a program where they have an opportunity to interact with judges one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, we go through questions they might have and we try to give them advice on careers once they leave law school. And if they do have an interest in the judiciary, either in clerking or uh, ascending to the bench as a judge, how they might do that. Now, you said uh, Louisville. Please settle something for me. Is it Louisville or Louisville? I say I'm a lifelong Hoosier and I say Louisville. That's an internal debate here at the office. I fall on the Louisville side <laughs> and um, I think I'm in the minority on that one, but I'll, I'll leave it be. It doesn't matter. I saw April, you are a uh, 2018 McKinney grad. Is that right? That is correct. Uh, most of journalism is just sort of uh, uh, professional stalking, I'd say. <laughs> so I, I went on your LinkedIn and found that. But you mentioned, you know, being a recent law school grad. I was wondering if you could explain just what having an organization like this uh, that, that takes an interest in law students does for those students. Well, as Judge Welch said, it's an opportunity for uh, law students to really find out what their space might be, whether it's working in a court as a clerk or maybe ascending to the bench. Um, but I know personally that I've benefited from my interaction with Judge Welch. She was one of the first judges that gave me my clerkship my 1L year and has served as an amazing mentor for me. So hopefully this organization will also serve as a platform for the law students that attend to create those, those mentor-mentee relationships. If you can put yourself back into the shoes of, of a law school, student. Um, I'm imagining a lot of them might feel a little intimidated, not sure exactly how to interact with a judge, somebody they perceive to be, you know, very important, and maybe they're aspiring to be that someday. What, what would be your advice to calm those nerves? First, take a deep breath. You're in law school, so you already uh, seem to have the ability to jump headfirst into something that's very challenging. But to also recognize the fact that everyone who's attending these events, they have one thing in mind, and that is to build up the judiciary. So you don't have to worry about trying to impress anyone. You can come as you are and enjoy yourself and find your niche. And Judge Welch, same question for you, but on the other side of this, then what is your advice to law school students who might look at someone like you and be like, gosh, how, how am I supposed to go introduce myself to Judge Welch? Well, I think they should definitely introduce themselves to me. Um, you know, people tend to think judges are uh, people you shouldn't talk to or you can't talk to. And I think that is a, a myth. Uh, I was a law student at one point in my life. I grew up in a blue collar city. My parents all worked in the automobile uh, factories in their uh, my grandparents, my aunts and uncles. And I didn't know any lawyers when I had decided I wanted to go to law school. So I was in that position. And I remember that I didn't have this opportunity to interact with judges. And so I would very much encourage them don't I know they may be nervous, but we are all uh, people and we want to help law students. And so please uh, talk to us, uh, stay in touch with us. It's very uh, rewarding to us as judges if we can help young people become successful in our profession. Well, you mentioned something I was planning to ask you about, which is, you know, sort of comparing what you're able to do for law students now compared to what you had uh, back in that, that time of your life. And is it is it that much different? I feel like it is. And maybe because back then, you know, um, we didn't have near the technology that they do now. And I can think back, I, I knew one judge um, on my graduation from law school, and that was Judge Nancy Vedic, uh, who wasn't at the Court of Appeals then. She was a, a 
judge in Porter County, and she was my uh, trial ad teacher, advocacy teacher uh, in law school. So uh, she was the only judge I knew. And when I graduated, until I started working in the Marion County Prosecutor's Office, and I just started appearing in front of judges, I didn't know any judges. And so now I feel like these opportunities are great opportunities for law students and uh, to really get to know judges and learn about how do you get a clerkship? How do you become a judge? You know, you can't Google that and find that out. You need to get that from people who have taken that path. And Judge Welch, uh, it looks like international judges also will, will be involved at this conference like we've talked about. Can you explain their involvement? Yes, we are very excited to have about 50 or so international judges, and they will come from all over the world. Uh, The United States Department of State works with um, some of our staff to make it possible for them to come. And so they will have a number of opportunities here in Indianapolis. They'll have two days of programming just for the international judges, which will be very beneficial. As you might imagine, in many of their countries, they don't have uh, a rule of law and an established justice uh, system for the courts like we do here in the United States. So they'll spend some time over the federal courthouse with uh, the judges there. They'll learn about um, how their court works. They'll get to observe some proceedings. They're going to spend some time at my court, the Marion Superior Court, uh, as we call the uh Community Justice Campus. They're going to watch some real live interactive proceedings, which uh, will be very beneficial to them. Uh, some of them will get to watch a court of appeals argument over at the State House in the Supreme Court uh, courtroom. And then they're also going to have the opportunity to go to the Indiana Coalition to end sexual assault and human trafficking. And then lastly, the Indiana Coalition Against Domestic Violence. And those are things that are very important for them to learn a lot about because they see that a lot in the countries where they are judges. It sounds like, I mean, this is a a three-day conference, the 5th, the 6th, and the 7th. Is my math right? Yes, your math is right. And so um, the international judges will come in early uh, because many times they come from 12 to 18 hours away. So they need to get over that jet lag. And then they'll have programming on um, all day Wednesday and Tuesday before we start the official conference on Thursday. In April, we've talked about we have the international judges and there are you know, judges coming from uh, around the country. What's the benefit to being able to meet people not just sort of in your profession, but, but from a diverse uh, geography as well? I think it does a couple of things. One, it it hopefully helps establish the benefits that may be associated with your judicial system, maybe things that we here in the United States may take for granted when it comes to our structure and our rule of law. But I think it also is a great opportunity for you to understand and connect with people who may have a different experience. I think a lot of what we do in lawyering is trying to understand the perspective of another. And so when you're learning that in that real life situation with a judge who may be practicing law in a different place and space, I think it really stretches you and grows you as a lawyer. Do you have to sort of drop your your guard or your preconceived notions of, well, this is the way you ought to do things. And then somebody else is coming in and having um, a different way that, well, that may or may not be right. I don't know. We have to talk about it. Is it interesting to go through that process? I think so. I think oftentimes in the practice of law, when we're asked a question and all the responses, it depends. So you always have to take into account the facts of the situation at that moment and then use that critical thinking to kind of come up with the solution. So as long as you're open to different ideas, I think that's probably the better way to go. And Judge Welch, for anyone who's interested, how can they learn more about the conference and register? Well, they can do one, two, one of two things. They could just Google 
uh, National Association of Women Judges 2023 conference, or they can go to nawj.org. That's the website. And I encourage everyone to take a look at it and attend, particularly if you're here in Indianapolis. We welcome judges, lawyers, law students, and it's a great opportunity to interact with a lot of uh, diverse female judges and individuals who have had many opportunities in their careers. Uh, two things I just want to point out. We're going to have um, Judge J. Mich Michelle Childs, who is now a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit Court. She was also on the finalist for the U.S. Supreme Court Justice, which she did not get, but she's, she's going to talk about her story and talk about that experience. Uh, we always have um, Dean Shimerinsky, who is a professor of constitutional law, and he will do a review of the recent U.S. Supreme Court decisions. I've heard that many times. It's fascinating. You can learn a lot. And there'll be just a lot of uh, judges there for people to have the, the opportunity to interact with and meet and build relationships with. Are you on the back end of your planning then, Judge Welch? Is, I mean, it sounds, we've talked about so much, and it sounds like it'll be a very busy few days. I think it will be a busy but fun few days. Uh, we do have a great uh, reception that'll take uh, place at the NCAA Hall of Champions, and then we also have a welcome reception on Thursday at the hotel, and I think those are going to be some great opportunities to interact and build those relationships I hope I'm on the end, back end of the planning. I do feel that we have the bulk of it done. As you might imagine, establishing the um, educational programs was a huge undertaking. And I really want to thank Judge Marissa McDermott from Lake County. She uh, was the chair of that subcommittee. And we have many great people coming to speak from across the U.S. And so I think it'll be a great opportunity for anybody who can attend. All right. Well, that'll do it for this week's extended interview. Thank you again to April and Judge Welch for joining me. Thanks, Tyler. Thank you. As always, to hear our previous interviews, visit the IndianaLawyer.com or find us on your favorite podcast app. We'll talk to you next time. 